Hey, everybody. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming out tonight. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Brad's a good buddy of mine, and when he asked me to do this, I just jumped at it. So, um, you know, what we're going to do tonight is, well, here's the deal. I have learned more. I, you know, I sat under some great preachers. You know, Andy preaches over the other, other room and some great guys. I've learned a ton from those guys, but I got to tell you, that probably the people I've learned the most from about following Jesus have been street people, drug addicts, homeless folks. And what I want to do tonight is tell you some of their stories. And I hope you'll learn from them as you hear about them. So that's kind of what we're going to do tonight. But I thought it would be great to kick this off by doing something that involved you a little bit first. And so I've got a question for you. We're going to throw it up there on the screen in just a second. And what I'd like you to do is get with a couple of three or four people, just turn around and uh, talk about this question for a couple minutes, and then we'll dive into some of these stories. So here's the question. When people on your campus think about Christians, what do you hope they'll think about? When people on your campus think about Christians, what do you hope they'll think about? So take a couple minutes Circle up with a couple of folks, and then we'll see what happens. On your marks, get set, go. Okay, if we had more time, I would love it if I could hear from each and every one of these groups. Um, In fact, if you're up for it afterwards, I'm not going anywhere right after we're done tonight, so I'd love to come on up, tell me what you came up with. Super important question, super important question, and I guess another way to frame the talk that I'm doing tonight is, it's my answer, and um, I want the people in my neighborhood, my city, my church, When they think about Christians, I want them to think about us as people who move toward the mess. Because I think that's the most accurate reflection of who Jesus is and what he did. So um, let me tell you how I came uh, came to that conclusion. So um, back in the 90s, a long, long time ago, we were living in London. And um, we, I worked at a church, and it had a soup kitchen on site, so every day, I don't know how often you cross paths with homeless folks. There's some amazing folks living on the streets. Just amazing. You know, you think they're a certain way and they're, they're amazing people. They just had a couple of bad breaks and sometimes made a couple of bad decisions. 
Um, but I was dealing with homeless people every day, day in, day out. And that's where I learned so much about Jesus from these guys. And um, there's this one particular guy I want to tell you about. His name's Terry. And Terry was a, um, a gay Irish drug addict. So it was like a Monday morning. I got to my office about 9 o'clock in. Uh, the, the gal that is our front office says, hey, there's a, there's a guy in your office waiting to talk to you. And I said, what? Because usually they didn't get into my office, but they got into my office somehow today. And she said, well, he's there, so go talk to him. So I said, okay. So Terry had been out all night in London uh, high on ecstasy. And he's, he was, got high the whole night. And there's a pretty uh, sketchy underground London club scene. And he was in that the whole night. Then he ran out of money. He ran out of drugs. And he said, I'm going to go over that blankety-blank church and talk to one of those blankety-blank pastors. So there I am. And he is howling mad because he's crashed. He's run out of everything that was making any sense of his life. And he clearly just wanted to try to provoke me. So the first thing he says is, well, you know, I'm gay. This is back in the 90s. That was a little more scandalous than it is now. I said, well, great. You know, I've had gay friends my whole life. We're good. No problem. Then he said, but I'm not particularly attracted to you. And I said, you know, this is the the package has changed a little bit. But he said, uh, at first I was going, wow, that kind of, wait, wait a minute. I'm heterosexual. Do I want to be attractive to a gay man? So I was confused, and my vanity and my sexual orientation conflicted with each other at that point. So it was an awkward conversation for a little while. And then, but then the third thing he said really kind of landed. He really landed a punch. He said, well, you Christians are all a bunch of... Yeah. I, and I kind of think he's right. In fact, I told him that day, I said, well, Terry, you know, you're right. I am a hypocrite. And the reason I'm involved in following Jesus, I'm hoping he's going to heal me of my hypocrisy. Um, But he was just spitting mad. So I decided then and there, I was going to start hanging out with Terry. So he started coming by. I started to hear his story. He heard a little bit of mine. Um, Things didn't always go smoothly. Sometimes he'd get, he'd just power up, you know, he got high or he was not high or something. And one time we had to call the police on him and uh, he called me an English swear word that probably if you're an American, you wouldn't have heard of it, but it's, it's like the, the equivalent of the F-bomb in England. And he was, I didn't, and I had to ask somebody, what, what does that word mean? And then he told me and I got mad after I heard what it meant. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So, um, but I got to know Terry and, um, we never talked a lot about Jesus, but we talked a lot about him getting back on his feet and uh, just kind of working through some of his stuff. And you know, I'm not a counselor. I'm just a guy, but I was willing to listen and, and I tried real hard not to judge or condescend or any of that kind of stuff. And um, good stuff started to happen to Terry. Um, he actually got a job. I don't know if you've ever been to London or seen pictures, but they got those double-decker red buses. He got a job as a conductor on one of those buses. Things were going great and then he disappeared. I never saw him again. You know, I don't know if he died. I don't know if he OD'd. I don't know if he went back to Ireland. I don't know if he just said, I'm done with those church people, but he just vanished. We couldn't find him. You know, we never really, you know, he was probably living on the street or close to, so we never got an angle on where we could go find him. And I thought, as you might imagine, I thought a lot about Terry in the the 
coming years, and I was wondering, why, why was he so angry at us Christians? And um, I realized he was kind of a personification of uh, the guy in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I just want to have that up on the screen, and we're just going to read this real quick and um, talk a bit about it. So Jesus, Jesus gave this parable in response to a question that a very religious person was asking him. And he says this, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Hang on to that phrase, passed by. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. By the way, you know this, a priest and Levite, kind of the epitome of religious professionals in first century Israel. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. A Samaritan, by the way, uh, was, by Jewish people, was considered a, a, a dangerous heretic. I mean, they would, her, Samaritans, um, just, just to give you a sense of how Israel felt about Samaritans, they felt about Samaritans the way a lot of Americans feel about terrorists. It's like, we got no patience for these people. That's the way Israel felt about these Samaritan guys. So Jesus came up with a category which was just the most offensive category he could think of. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, about two days' wage, two days' worth of pay, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. And you guys, as I read that, I realized Terry was that guy that was beaten up on the side of the road. He was that wounded guy. He, his whole life, had heard, had seen Christians pass him by. He had heard the name of Jesus all the time, and he had never experienced the love of Jesus' people. That's why he was so angry. He was wounded. He, you know, not physically like this guy was, although, Terry, you get, if you're on the street, I came to understand you're going to get beat up every once in a while, but Terry was lonely, he was angry, he was unstable, he was dishonest, he was unpredictable, he was messy. And I, I get that, you know, messy people, they can be kind of scary. I had to, you know, I, I had to pray up, pray myself up sometimes to hang out with Terry, because it was, it was not predictable. You know, all my little phrases, all my little Christian formulas, they didn't work with Terry. So I get that. I get why it's hard to be with folks like that. But that was exactly what Jesus was calling me to do. And the fact is, you guys know this, there are millions and millions of messy people like Terry. They're not always by themselves. They're not always poor. They're not always out on the street. They're not always homeless. But they're everywhere. They're across the hall from you in your dorm. They're down the street. They're in your classroom. They're in your neighborhood. They're from your high school where you used to go to. They're everywhere. People struggling with everything from loneliness and depression 
you turn it up to 10, all of a sudden we're talking about addiction, we're talking about trafficking, and in other countries we're talking about persecution, we're talking about people getting crushed by paramilitary organizations. And what I came to see, you know, remember I said I've learned more about following Jesus by hanging out with people like Terry than practically anywhere else? One of the things I learned that was so valuable is the way they see us Christians. They see us as people who pass by on the other side. Terry, his whole life, oh, there goes one of those Christians. I'm over here, and they're just walking by, passing by. You know, we pass by, it's not like we're going to rob a bank or something. I mean, we're passing by these people. We're going to church, we're going to a small group, we're going to a Bible study. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, we've got to keep that up. But that's become our identity. The answer to that question, if we took it out to where perhaps you go to school, people would say, well, yeah, those Christians, those are those people that go to church. Those are those people that walk by on their way to a Bible study on their way to a small group. And that's become our identity. Those are those people that pass by. Those are those people that they're on their way to some religious deal, and I'm over here, you know, figuratively speaking, uh, on the street, beat up, needing somebody to love me. What if we change that? What if, what if you change that? What if in your sphere of influence, you started to rebrand the way all those people thought about Christians? What if we became known as people who didn't pass by, but what if we became known as people like that Samaritan who inconvenienced ourselves to help those people? Realizing that a lot of the stuff those people are struggling with, we're struggling with. And we're right in the middle of that. I mean, if we were going to do a gut check tonight, how many of us would say, well, I'm addicted to something, or I'm, I'm knee-deep in something, or I'm struggling with depression, or I'm about on the edge? I mean, it's not like we're different than they are. We're all fallen human beings. It just, I assume a lot of the people in this room, we've started to let Jesus help us. And we're, not, we're being healed, but we're not healed yet. So in point of fact, we got a lot in common with those folks, and which is why it's important to know the church is not a country club for saints. It's a hospital for sinners, for messy people. And those folks, they don't get that. They think, oh, they're on their way. They're passing by to go to these religious things. And again, we need to be studying scripture. We need to be praying. But if that's crowding out the time we need to be with the people Jesus was with, then maybe we need to do a gut check and see exactly what it means to be following Jesus. Because best I can tell, when you ask, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Where are we going? He says, well, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going towards those messy people, those people out there on the street, those non-religious people. That's, that's where I'm headed. And if I was wondering if you wanted to come join me. If we did that, you guys... This would change, this would be a huge game changer. And the good news is, you can do this. You can start this tonight. You can start this tomorrow morning. It's not like you got to get super spiritual or prayed up or, you know, this or that. 
Jesus says, hey, would you like to get going? Okay, we can go right now. And by the way, this, can't, this cannot be driven by guilt. So if you're feeling, oh my gosh, the preacher's making me feel bad, guilt is not powerful enough to make this change from being a passerbyer to a move toward her. Guilt is powerful enough to make you unhappy and me unhappy. Guilt is not powerful enough to change the way we live. So if you're thinking about, if you're feeling guilty right now, you need to stop that. That has nothing to do with following Jesus. Nobody in the New Testament ever followed Jesus because they felt like they should or they ought. And don't raise your hand, but how many times have you gone to church or gone to the living room or somewhere else because you felt you should or you ought? Man, I do that all the time. It kills me. And Jesus said, Hamrick, stop it. Nobody should be following me because they think they ought to or because they think they should. People should be following Jesus because we are just knocked out by this guy. My, my gosh, who says that kind of thing? Who does that kind of thing? I got I to, gotta, I, gotta, I need more of this. So if you're feeling guilty right now, stop it. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're talking about following the most remarkable individual who ever lived and died and rose again and following him right to where he's taken us into the mess. Um, my boss, our boss, everybody on staff here, Andy, uh, wrote the foreword of this book I wrote, and he said something in the, in the foreword pretty in- interesting, I thought. He said, public opinion polls show that Christians are not highly thought of in our country these days, But if everybody in the American church started to move toward the mess, our nation may start to change its mind about us. They might never believe what we believe, but they'd want us for a neighbor. They'd want to work for us or have us work for them. They'd want their sons and daughters to marry our sons and daughters. The moral and spiritual chaos that seems to dog our country's every step would begin to shrink. People would begin to rethink their views about God and the church. It's happened before. It can happen again. And you could play a part in that. And it's happening. Let me tell you a couple stories here. The first story, this is one of my favorite stories. A good buddy of mine, his name is Leroy Lamar. Leroy and Janelle live down in Capitol View. They moved there several years ago. And it's a long story why they moved into that particular neighborhood. It's a tough neighborhood. There's a lot, lots of prostitution, lots of drug dealing, lots of violent crime. And uh, when Leroy first moved in the neighborhood, so all this was happening right out in front of his house, he used to call the cops on these people. Just scared. You know, he had a family, he had a wife. You know, he was scared because this is always happening, like right in front of him. But Leroy, and Leroy's just a normal guy. If he was up here, I wish he was. He's, you'd just go, hey, Leroy is, is cool. He's just one of us. He's not some spiritual giant. And um, he was talking with some other Christians in the neighborhood, and they said, you know, maybe rather than call on the cops on these people, we should do something, try something. Leroy said, well, what's that? Well, and they came up with this, I love this idea, because it's just, it seems so weird. I don't know. Surprising. So they picked this uh, corner in the neighborhood, and if you could just visualize this corner, here's a crack house. Here's a brothel, here's a halfway house, and here's a vacant lot where people got the crap beat out of them after dark sometimes. And guess what they did? I just love this. This just knocks me out. Every time I tell this story, I just go, holy cow. They got a card table, and they made this little sign with just a regular pen that said, hot dogs and prayers. And they 
they made a bunch of hot dogs and they took it to this intersection every Sunday at five and set this table up and all, all these people were walking by and they say, hey, would you like a hot dog? Okay. Well, how can we be praying for you? And at first, everybody wanted the hot dogs. They just thought this whole prayer thing was weird. Like, what? What? You want me to what? But they kept showing up every Sunday at five and slowly but surely, people started to tell their stories. And these are, these are drug dealers. These are acts. These are prostitutes. These are criminals. They're older people that had been in the neighborhood a long time. They're little kids. And slowly but surely, people t- started to tell them their story. And um, amazing things started to happen. The story that they heard over and over again from the prostitutes in the neighborhood was that they had been sexually abused sometime between the age of six and eight. In fact, one of the stories that Leroy tells is about Crystal, who was, her mom was a crack addict, sold Crystal to a pimp when she was six. So how could she be anything but a prostitute with that background? And they kept hearing stories like that over and over and over again, and it broke their heart. And they said, we got to do something. So fast forward, and today Leroy and Janelle run a, a nonprofit street ministry called Serenity Steps, and they are involved in the lives of 40 or 50 sex workers, mainly women, but some guys as well. And they are talking about mess. They are in the middle of this but they're loving those gals as human beings. And it's the, for most of these gals and guys, it's the first time somebody had cared about them for anything other than sex. And it's revolutionary, you guys. It's amazing. Leroy made a choice to move toward the mess. And it's changing the neighborhood. Capital View is starting to think differently about what it means to be a follower of Jesus because of Leroy and Janelle. What if we start, what if everybody in this room, and that, you guys, you know what, that's why I'm here. I'm here to ask you to consider, stop, and some of you I'm sure are already doing this. Maybe for you I'm asking you to do it more, but I'm asking you if you would consider tonight starting to live differently, to stop passing by people beat up, injured, hurt, and start moving toward them. I'm asking you to consider that. That's why I'm here. Let me tell you another story. Um, there's a guy named Steve Camerson. He's a corporate VP. He goes to Buckhead Church. I don't know if you know, uh, we have a, a mentoring program with a school down in southwest Atlanta, a grade school. We have a ton of people that go there once a month or so just to hang out with little kids. And um, it's really amazing. And let me just briefly read uh, something. So Steve started doing this, and he wrote us an email about it, and I just want to read you part of it. He said, I'd, and the little guy he talked to is named the J-Man, and the J-Man's like it's thinking second grade. So what is it? Second grade, what is that? Like eight, nine, something like that? Um, thank you. Our educational consultant right over here. I'd been mentoring the J-Man for eight months and did not think I was making any difference. About three weeks ago, things changed. He had asked me since day one to take him somewhere on the weekend. I told him I would, but I could never contact his mom, so I couldn't do it. She didn't have a phone. 
So I went uh, a couple of weeks ago to meet, meet him at school, and he asked me again, hey, could we go somewhere on the weekend? I said, well, your mom doesn't have a phone, so until I talk to her, we can't do this. And, she, and the J-man said, well, I got, my mom got a phone. And he didn't, Steve didn't believe that. He said, okay, we'll, we'll see. Well, about an hour after he left campus, the mom calls, and, and she says, um, I, J-man loves it when you come and be with him at school. He loves it. And yes, you have my permission to take him somewhere on Saturday. So Steve, he says, I, when I went to pick him up, it was worse than I expected. There were about eight people living in this apartment. There were mattresses on the floor. The kitchen was all busted up. There were drugs and alcohol everywhere. It was just a bad situation. And we left. And the first thing the J-man asked is, could we go get something to eat? And so they go up the street and get some breakfast. And then they go to this uh, children's museum called Imagine It. We had a great time, Stephen says. He asked to eat again, so after the museum, we went out to dinner. It breaks my heart that he needs food. We had another outing with his mom's permission the following week. We went to the park and then out to eat. He kept telling me he wanted a white box. I finally figured out that he wanted a white to-go box so he could take some food home with him. His mom texted me tonight and told me I was making a big difference. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to connect with a J-man. I am the winner, says Stephen, the mentor in this whole thing. Let me tell you one last story. Um, Something that involves me. By the way, I'm half Irish. I'm half German. So if if you know anything about the Irish, we're very emotional people. That's why we drink a lot. And... um, (laughs) Germans are very rational, and so I am constantly at war with myself, but when I tell this story, usually the Irish side uh, wins out, so if I get a little weepy, sorry. So um, we live in this neighborhood, uh, lived there for a while, and we have neighbors, we'll just call them Bill and Jane, and you know, they're not Christians, they don't, they don't care about church. You know, we've asked them to come, and they politely blow us off, and but we've hung out with him. She's an artist. My wife's an artist. So we've gone to art shows together, had dinner together. But we just thought we were making zero progress in anything other than a very shallow friendship. And then about a month ago, I get a call from Bill. And he says, hey, I just wanted to tell you that Jane, his wife, has been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And if you know anything about that, about the cancer world, that's like about, that's pretty much a death sentence, stage four pancreatic cancer. And he says, we wanted to tell you because you are part of our support network. And I said, my wife, Patty, did you know we were part of their support network? I I had no idea. Wow. And he said, don't tell anybody else in the neighborhood because we don't want those people pestering us. But we wanted to tell you. So we've been praying for Bill and Jane big time. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh. But the point of that story is, you know, you don't need, if you don't want to go down to Capitol View, or if you, that's cool. But the chances are the mess God wants you to move for, you already know about. I don't think you've got to think something up. I think if you think about this, you probably already know. So here's what I want to do in closing. I, like I said, I'm here tonight to ask you to consider changing the way you live. Stop passing by, start moving toward. That's what Jesus did. So we're going to have just about 30 seconds of silence. And then I'm going to close this in prayer.
And uh, please, I know you guys are about that close to finals and the crunch factor is turned up to 10, and, but please don't think about that right now. If, listen to what God might want to say to you. Listen, to, you know, listen carefully to that name. Maybe it's the person across the hall. Maybe, maybe it's a nonprofit that you heard about that you're very interested in. But would you listen for 30 seconds? And then I'll close this in prayer. Thanks, you guys. Thanks. Jesus, you know I'm here because somebody saw me in the gutter a long time ago and didn't walk by. Maybe that's true for some other folks in the room. And Lord, we don't want to stop listening to excellent teachers like Brad and Andy and others. We don't want to stop praying. But Lord, we realize that your heart is with the people that are struggling, that are messy, that are sometimes hard to be with. Would you please, Lord, two things, make our heart a little more like yours. And Father, if there's a person that you want us to start to pay attention to, not that we can fix them, but just that we can be with them, Lord, would you bring that name to mind, and in the next few days, would you give us an opportunity to move in their direction and to see what you're already up to in their life? Thanks so much for moving in our direction and for giving us an opportunity to move towards somebody else. We ask this in Jesus' name.